Good morning. Hope you had a good spring break. Maybe got some sun or maybe not. Hope you did. But the sun is coming. It's now spring and you can tell outside. If you have your Bibles, uh, you want to turn to the book of Colossians. We'll be there for a while, so you might want to put a marker in there for the coming weeks. Last week, we looked at Colossians 1, 1 to 8. Today, we'll look at 9 to 14 of chapter 1. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for your inspired and errant word. We thank you for how it teaches us about you and how we ought to live in a life that is pleasing to you, how we ought to bear fruit. So, Father, as we look at this book that is all about your son and all about how to live for your son, allow it not just to be head knowledge, which is not knowledge at all, it just puffs up, but transformational in our lives. For your glory and our betterment, in the name of Christ, amen. It's possible that some of you know who Dr. R. Kent Hughes is. Until a handful of years ago, he was the senior pastor at College Church of Wheaton. He's a tremendous writer and really an outstanding man. Well, he tells an account from 1930s that really is moving in my life. The account is about a man named Dr. Raymond Edmond. And Dr. Raymond Edmond and his wife, soon after getting married, moved to Ecuador. And their desire was to share salvation by faith in Christ alone with unreached people groups. Groups that didn't know the name of Christ, didn't have Bible in their language. And so they would go out into the jungles and sometimes they'd be gone for 24 hours, sometimes 48, sometimes 72, sometimes even a week as they would go out to the various villages. On one such trip, Dr. Raymond Edmond got sick. When he came back into the camp, it was clear to everyone he had a very severe fever and he was not doing well. The locals took one look at him, declared that he had jungle fever and that he would die before the next sunset. You can imagine how startled that was uh, for his bride, recently married, moving out into the jungle, working for the Lord, and within 24 hours, she's told her husband will be dead. They called for a missionary doctor several villages over. He came, took one look at him, and said to Raymond's wife, he's going to die. He'll be dead within 24 hours. There's no cure. There's nothing that can be done. And within six hours after his death, his body needs to be in the ground because of the heat. So you need to take the next 24 hours to prepare for the funeral service that is about to come. She had taken her wedding dress with her to Ecuador. She dyed it a very dark color. She prepared for the funeral. Several thousand miles away in Boston, Dr. Joseph Evans 
was involved in a prayer meeting with a handful of individuals. God impressed upon him in the middle of the prayer meeting to stop the prayer meeting and to have everybody in the prayer meeting pray for this Ecuadorian missionary several thousand miles away. So he followed the promptings of God, stopped the prayer meeting, said, I know we were praying for important things, but God has laid on my heart that we need to pray for Dr. Raymond Edmond, who is in Ecuador, and we need to keep praying. And so they prayed for about 20 minutes, had no idea what they were praying for. They just asked that God would do what only God can do and that God would in some way interact in the situation of this missionary that's thousands of miles away. And then God spoke again to Dr. Joseph Evans' heart and he stood up and said, we're done praying. Victory has been won. What victory? He had no idea. He just said, God told me victory's been won, so victory's been won. I don't know what we were praying for. Well, it was a few weeks that passed because we're in the 1930s and communication isn't all readily available, especially in Ecuador. And they get news that their missionary was deathly sick, had been all but pronounced dead, on such and such a date, at such and such a time, but somehow God miraculously intervened and he's completely healthy and he's going on with ministry. And they compare the time and the date with when they were praying and they realize that God did what only God could do. God impressed upon their hearts to pray for a man several thousands of miles away in a situation they didn't know anything about, a danger they were unaware of, and God showed up and God did what only God could do. A few years later, he left the mission field and he became the president of Wheaton College. God did what God could do. God restored this man's life. By the way, the wedding dress was not restored. It was ruined. Oh, well. Now, I don't know what you think about that. That moves me. I've heard that story from multiple sources, but originally I heard it from Kent Hughes. And I'm really impressed by it because God does this in my life. Oh, maybe not that dramatic, but God lays upon my heart individuals to pray for. Now, I don't sleep very well, so it tends to happen between 1 and 2 in the morning. Again, last night at 1 in the morning. The night before, it was 2 in the morning. I'm just all of a sudden wide awake, and God lays individuals on my mind to pray for, and I pray, and then I fall back asleep. And I know I'm not alone. It may not be 1 or 2 in the morning for you, but I know that if you walk with the Lord, it's very likely that God lays on your heart individuals Some you're related to, some you're not. Some you understand the situation, some you don't. And sometimes we have the privilege of seeing what God has done in the midst of our prayer and we rejoice. And sometimes we're gonna have to wait until we get home to glory. And then we see what God has done and what a praise party that will be as we say, oh Lord, I know now why you had me pray at that moment, at that time. You did what only you could do. 
And that's what's going on in today's text. Today's text is about the Apostle Paul praying for a church in Colossae. You remember last week, we got a little introduction. We were introduced to a man named Epaphras, chapter 1, 7, and 8, and also he'll show up again in chapter 4. And we learned that Epaphras plants the church at Colossae in AD 51. Paul writes the book of Colossians in AD 61. We have a 10-year period. We also realize that Paul has never been to Colossae. We have no evidence that he has ever been to this church. And it doesn't fit the type of churches he would go to or that he would plant. But he knows about Colossae because he knows Epaphras. Probably around AD 55, they were jailmates. They were in jail together. And Paul is going to go on to say that he has been praying for this church ever since. Think about that. He's never met these people. He's never been to their church. He's going to write an epistle to them. And he's been praying for people he's never met for six long years. And before we get to the text, let me make two observations that I think the text will bear out. The first observation is this. Prayer does not require proximity. This is so important. Prayer does not require proximity. So we have a prayer meeting in Boston praying for a missionary in Ecuador and God shows up, no proximity whatsoever. We have Paul praying for believers in Colossae that perhaps he has never met. And he's been praying for them for six years, sends them an epistle inspired by God's spirit. Prayer does not require proximity. This is huge. Some of us have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or relatives that don't live anywhere near us. We want them to live near us. We want to be in proximity with them, but they don't live with us, and prayer does not require proximity. We can pray for loved ones no matter where in the world they live. Whether they live next door or they live halfway around the world, prayer does not require proximity. We can be world Christians because prayer does not require proximity. We are commanded in Scripture to pray for those who are in authority over us. Kings and whatever, obviously, government officials. We may never meet the president we're commanded to pray for him. We may never meet senators or representatives, women and men who represent us, represent us in government, but we're required to pray for them. Members of the Supreme Court, or in a very short amount of time, we are going to vote here in Wisconsin for a Supreme Court nominee. An incredibly important vote. Vote, educate yourself, and pray. We're required to by God. It's part of being salt and light. Don't allow the elections to go by and say it doesn't matter. It matters. And we are required by God to allow God's voice to be heard through us. Proximity is not required in prayer. It's absolutely not. Think of the missionaries. Highland has 40 missionaries. Probably, maybe Andrew could name all 40. Maybe. Maybe a few others on the mission. Most of us can't. 
But we can name two or three or four and we can pray for them. It doesn't matter where they are in the world because prayer does not require proximity. We can be world Christians wherever we are because prayer does not require proximity. The second thing I think we'll see in the text is that Paul prays for a church that is doing well. Now, I've already talked last week. I'll talk again later on today. This church is under attack. We have two different groups, Judaizers and proto-Gnostics, that are infiltrating the church. But by and large, this church is healthy. You remember, we saw in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, this is a church with faith, love, and hope. Faith is biblical doctrine. They're solid on it. But they're living out that doctrine with love because remember, all of the law and the prophets hang on love for God and for neighbor. It's not enough to know orthodoxy. When we live it out, we have to live it out with love. We're not to be hateful, angry, bitter. We're to live out truth with an attitude of love because we have hope, verse 5. And what is our hope? It's salvation, which is kept by God for us where? In heaven. It is God who is holding on to us. We have eternal security in Christ because our security is not kept by us. It's not on earth. Verse 5 says it is in heaven. And so we have this church that is quite orthodox with faith, has the right attitude and love, and looks forward to the future and hope. This is a healthy church, and yet Paul is praying for them. This broadens the way you and I pray. Sometimes when we pray, we rightly pray for those who are bereaving, and we ought to. We rightly pray for those who have surgery or are recovering, and we ought to. We rightly pray for those who are having relationship difficulties, financial trials, tribulations in their lives, and we ought to. But Paul is praying for a church where he's never been, people he does not know, where things are going well, even though False teachers are infiltrating it. It's a church that is healthy, and yet he's praying for it. Why? Because Paul knows that at times when good things are happening, sometimes we take our eyes off of the Lord, and we get a little bit too self-sufficient. How does that hymn go? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so knowing this, Paul prays for Christ's followers who are doing well. And so that broadens how you and I ought to pray, not just for those in difficult times, but those who are doing well. Well, with these two opening observations, let me read Colossians 1. Let me read verses 9 to 14. And so, from the day we heard, Paul hasn't been to this church. We have not ceased to pray for you. If I'm right, he learned about them in 8055. It's 8061. It's been six years asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we'll see that that word knowledge is actually a supercharged word. And in the Hebrew mindset, knowledge is not just what you know up here. It's how you and I live it in our lives. And what happens with knowledge? We walk, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And if you're walking in a manner that is fully pleasing to him, you, I, we are bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might 
for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Because if you know Christ, your inheritance, verse 5, is kept for you in heaven. No wonder we're giving thanks. And then look at verses 13 and 14. No wonder we're giving thanks. Believer, he has delivered you, me, us, from the domain of darkness, transformed us or transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you and I begin in verse nine and it really talks about the constancy of prayer. Paul says, I'm remembering you all the time. He hasn't been there. He doesn't know these people. It's been six years since he heard about them and he's constantly praying for them. This is the way that the Christ follower lives. Constancy of prayer, sending up little SOS prayers. It kind of goes like this. Lord, I'm gonna meet with so-and-so later on today. You know, Lord, that I don't really appreciate that individual. And you and I both know, Lord, I'm right and they're wrong. But Lord, I have this problem with my tongue. And so I'm asking you, Lord, that I would respond with love, not arrogance, not pride, not holier than thou, that I would respond with love. Or it might be like this. Lord, I want you to grab a hold of my children and my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, or a relative or a friend. Grab hold of her, grab hold of him. Shake them to the core of their being. Allow them to see you for who you are. Make yourself so real to them that they are on fire for Jesus. Amen. Or maybe it's something like this. Lord, I have the opportunity to meet with a coworker or a neighbor today. They don't know you. Would you open the door and allow me to be bold? Would you give me an opportunity to testify one beggar needing salvation to another beggar who needs salvation. May I share salvation through you with my friend? Will you give me that opportunity? Or maybe it's, Lord, you know the temptation areas in my life, those areas where I give in all too readily. Would you work in me and would you give me victory for the next hour, the next day, Will you work in me and give me victory? Sentence prayers, constancy in prayer. I think of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. How are we to live? Rejoicing, praying, being filled with thanksgiving. That's a constancy in prayer, and that's what Paul models for, him, for them. But it's not just general prayer. In his case, it's very specific. Let me read verse 9 again. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We have to go back to our setting Paul is writing to a healthy church. We know that from verses four and five of chapter one. But we also know that this church is being infiltrated. I suggested last week two groups are infiltrating the church. 
One group is attacking Gentile Christ followers and one group is attacking Jewish Christ followers. The Gentile Christ followers are being attacked by a proto-Gnostic group. Proto means initiation or beginning. Gnosticism won't be full-blown until the second and third century, but we have evidence of it early on in the first century. And they're teaching that knowing Jesus, yeah, it's kind of good, not really, it's a waste of time. But what you really need to do is try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, engage yourself in the mystery religion, learn a little bit more about mystery, and then you will be saved. By the way, we have this in the 21st century. Some of us have books on pneumatology where individuals are trying to find all the mysteries through the numbers and the counting of letters in Scripture. Do you know what that is in the 21st century? That's what the heresy was in the 2nd and 3rd century. It's called Gnosticism. And it has re-emerged in our century. And we're reading this stuff. And we're trying to find all sorts of mystical clues in Scripture through numbers. That's a really old heresy. We haven't gotten brighter as the centuries have gone on. Then there's another group. They're the Judaizers. They weren't called that until the 20th century. But we know about them. They were Jewish individuals who often followed Bible teaching, infiltrated churches and said, you know, that Jesus stuff a little overrated. If you want to be saved, you got to go back to Moses. You got to go back to the Levitical system. You have to have a kosher kitchen and kosher laws. And you have to wash your hands in a certain way. It has nothing to do with hygiene. It has everything to do with ceremonial cleansings. And you might as well throw a little mikvah in. A mikvah is a ceremonial bath. They're all over, by the way, the United States and our country. Mikvahs are ceremonial baths where you would bathe yourself once or twice a day in order to be cleansed, and if you're a part of the Haredim, the most orthodox Jewish sects in the world today, you will be part of mikvah bathing. And it all is a works salvation. And so these two groups are saying, if you will just have a little more knowledge, gnosis, then you'll be okay. Now this doesn't come across in English, but it does in Greek. They're pushing gnosis, and Paul says, you want gnosis? I'm going to up the ante, and he gives a prefix and says, what you really need is epinosis. And so he throws in a prefix, a greater knowledge, and the greater knowledge is Christ. The one, according to Matthew 5, 17 to 20, who lived the Levitical laws for us, fulfilled the Levitical laws on our behalf, and tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus you want greater knowledge, keep your eyes on Jesus. Imitate Jesus. How do you do that? You have your hand on the word. Go back to verses 4 and 5. They had faith, lived out in love and hope. That faith is the Bible. It's doctrine. Now, every so often, I'll get someone who will say, Jeff, don't give us that doctrine stuff. Give us some practical living. I understand the sentiment, but it's really anti-Christian. It's certainly anti-biblical. The Bible is actually set up that you have right doctrine, orthodoxy, which leads to right living, orthopraxy. 
Let me illustrate it this way. Romans has 16 chapters. The first 11 chapters are theology, orthodoxy. The last five chapters are orthopraxy, how to live. You don't know how to live until you know how to think. So 11 chapters tell us how to think. Five chapters tell us how to live. Ephesians. Three chapters tell us how to live, orthodoxy. The last three chapters tell us, or excuse me, the first three chapters tell us how to think, orthodoxy. The last three chapters tell us how to live, orthopraxy. Colossians. First two chapters, orthodoxy. Last two chapters, orthopraxy. You got to know what to believe in order to live. Philippians. First two chapters, doctrine, what to know. Last two chapters, or the praxy, what to live. I could go back to Genesis. I was talking to, or talking with our small group, and, and I think you even see it in the first book of the Bible. The first 11 chapters is all about God and his creation. You say, no, there's also the, the flood. Well, that's about God. And the Tower of Babel, that's about God. The first 11 chapters are all about God and what you ought to know about God. What are the next 12 to 50 about? How to live it out. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You can find this pattern throughout Scripture. And so Paul tells them, he tells us, what we need is to have our eyes on the Word of God, but if the Word of God doesn't translate into fruit, an abiding fruit, verse 11, we haven't really learned the Word of God. We need this greater knowledge, which is more than head knowledge. It's transformed in our lives into fruit. I'm going to stop for a moment. You'll be happy to know I'm one-tenth of the way through my sermon. And I'm going to stop for a moment for two minutes. They're going to play some music. I want each of us to think of a person or two that needs greater knowledge, biblical knowledge. And let's just pray to the Lord on behalf of those people, and then I'll go back to my sermon. Father God, I thank you that you can do what only you can do. And so we've lifted up some names before you and asked that their eyes would be open, that you would give them greater knowledge, knowledge of you. We ask this for ourselves and we ask this for our friends and loved ones. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, that greater knowledge always bears fruit. So verse 10 says this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Knowledge without fruit condemns. It does not cause us to be closer to the Lord. We need to know with transformation. I remember when I was writing this sermon, I was thinking about a couple. You don't know the couple, so... If this approximates someone you know, it's not the right couple. 
but it's a couple I know, and one of the members of the couple knows the Bible exceptionally well. They know all the biblical stories. They know the background behind the Bible. And they use the Bible as a weapon. And they beat up their spouse, their friends, others with the Bible because they know it well. But do they really know the Bible well if they're not bearing fruit? A Hebrew would say, no. You know what they're really doing is pushing their loved ones away from Scripture and God. That's what they're doing. That's actually what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. And this is Jesus' response. Matthew 23, 27 and 8. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. The tombs in the first century, many of them were made out of some kind of limestone that would turn a little bit moldy and green in the spring. And so they would take prisoners out of the penal colonies with white paint and they would go to the gravestones and whitewash them. So that's what he's referring to. You're like the whitewashed tombs. They painted them, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones, all in cleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul prays for the Colossians. He prays for us that we would not just be filled with knowledge, orthodoxy, but that it would live out in orthopraxy. We would bear fruit. In fact, a Hebrew would say, if you think you know scripture, but you're not living it out, you don't know scripture. I remember when Betty Ann and I were in college. I think it was our senior year. We were probably engaged. And Betty Ann wrote a paper on gnosis. And she was a psychology major. Would go on then to grad school and in Christian counseling. And she wrote such a good paper that she was asked to present it at a symposium to a number of PhDs and, and really smart people. Because my wife is like really smart. And in that paper, she rightly said that this word gnosis in a Hebrew mindset does not mean hen knowledge. Let me illustrate it this way. If you say, I know the Ten Commandments, and you can cite all ten, and you can even do it in order, but you're not living it out, a Hebrew would say, you don't know the Ten Commandments. It's not what you know here, it's what you know here that transforms to one's life. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians, these false teachers are giving you knowledge, but it doesn't transform lives. You need epinosis, greater knowledge, and we know we have greater knowledge when it bears fruit. And so Paul then says that fruit is in every good work. Karpos or parke are the words for fruit. And interestingly enough, at least I found it interesting, in the New Testament, there are four categories that are given of which we would bear fruit. Now, I am well aware there are more than four categories. But the New Testament only lists four categories of which we bear fruit. And I wonder if I said, let's take out a piece of paper. I want you to guess what are the four categories in which the New Testament says, if you do these things with the right attitude, you're bearing fruit. 
Only four are given. There's others, but only four are given. I wonder if you would get all four. I would not. I would not have gotten all four. These are the four categories. The first is when you and I share salvation by faith with Christ alone with others. Paul uses the word, they are the first fruits. He talks at the end of Corinthians that the household of Stephanus is the first fruit of Ikea. What he's saying is that when you and I share salvation by faith in Christ alone, whether someone believes in Christ or not, we have bore fruit. Drawing someone to the Savior is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not our job, but our job is to share salvation with others, to get involved missiologically in missions, sending people to share the gospel, inviting friends to come to church where they'll hear the gospel. When we do these things, the Bible says, you, I, we have bore fruit. That's one of the four. The second is when we get our praise on. When you and I are filled with praise, actually worship, we are said to be bearing fruit. Paul uses the word in Hebrews 13, 15. He calls the sacrifice of praise and confessing the name of Jesus. He calls that fruit. So when you and I are confessing Christ and we're praising Christ and our eyes are on Christ rather than circumstances, our eyes are on Christ rather than life, our eyes are on Christ rather than what goes on all around us, when our eyes are on Christ, we are bearing fruit. So we're bearing fruit when we're telling people about Christ or supporting missionaries who are telling people about Christ or bringing people to church where they'll hear about Christ. That's fruit. And when we keep our eyes on Christ and are living worship-filled wise, that's fruit. The third area is the first fruits of our income. It's when we say, Lord, I'm not gonna keep the first of my income for myself. I'm going to give the first of my income to you and your bride. That's what I'm going to do. That's the third way of fruit. It's all over scripture, but Romans 15, 26 and following. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and delivered to them what has been collected, the fruit, then I'll leave for Spain. And the fourth, you got this one, I know. And that's your attitudes. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If you and I want to bear fruit, if we want to have that greater knowledge, that epi knowledge, which is not just head knowledge, but it's transformed, we're going to bear fruit. And the four that the Bible gives us is sharing the gospel, getting our worship on, our praise on, giving the first fruits of our income, and then the last one, our attitudes, bearing fruit, the fruit of God's spirit. And Paul goes on to say that kind of fruit needs to what? Endure. Verse 11. We can't be flash in the pan Christ followers. I love it when people come to Christ. I love it when people who have walked away from the Lord come back and they're on fire. And I'm excited about that. But a part of me always says, I gotta wait. Don't get too excited. Gotta see what happens in month three. Gotta see what happens in month eight. 
Because sometimes people come to Christ and they're all excited and then it kind of withers. The Bible talked about that. It's kind of the gospel on stony ground. It's the gospel that seems to be received but probably wasn't. The Bible also talks about individuals who know the Lord and yet they backslide. That's all of our story, isn't it? And then they get on fire again. And, and what Paul says is you want epigenosis. You want that greater knowledge. You got to have that faith, your hand on the word. You got to live it out with love. You got to keep your eyes on Jesus, which is our hope, our eternal security kept in heaven. Chapter 1, 4, and 5. And then you, you got to have this knowledge for the long game. And how you know you have the knowledge for the long game, enduring, verse 11, is that you and I bear fruit, verse 10. And we have so many reasons to bear fruit, 13 and 14. We have been taken out of darkness and brought into light. We have been taken out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of God. And so when we keep our eyes on the truth, and we have this long game perspective of how we are going to project going forward, growing in Christ, growing in faith, in love, keeping our eyes on the hope, bearing fruit. God is pleased. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for the book of Colossians, we're barely in it. And yet it challenges us, encourages us, moves us to take another step in our relationship with you. Help us to take those steps for your glory and our benefit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.